So it is the last Sunday in January. And honestly, if you're anything like me, it feels like it's about the 12th Sunday in this month. I don't know why January always feels like it's about twice as long as every other month. But I wonder, have any of us made New Year's resolutions? Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Apparently, 93% of us set them. But let's do a show of hands of who has at least thought about a New Year's resolution for the year. Yeah, a good, a good amount of us, yeah. Now, every year, though, you're maybe a bit like me, and you're hesitant to set any, and because, well, I know how bad I am at actually keeping them. But we make the promise to ourselves anyway, don't we? Every year, we say that we're going to exercise more, or that we're going to eat better, or that we're going to start learning a new skill, or that we're going to get more organized, or spend more time with the family. We all set something. And yet, with all of these great promises we make, by February, by, by February, apparently, like that's next week, apparently half of us will have failed our New Year's resolution. And now we're looking at a passage this evening which is actually really significant in the storyline of the Bible, because in it, God makes a promise to David and it's one which, if it's fulfilled, would shape history. But what if God gave up on his promise by February? What if, just like all of our attempts to keep a New Year's resolution, God threw in the towel a month later? What if the situations and the circumstances around the promise just got too much? What if they got too much and he gave it up? Because he's promised here far more than we would ever dream of biting off. So where are we in the biblical story anyway? Well, David is king at the minute, and he seems to be doing really well. So he's conquered Jerusalem, and then he doesn't want to just make it the political capital, though he wants it to make, make it their spiritual capital as well. And so what he does is he moves in the Ark of the Covenant, and it's here then that we pick up this story. Now, when I'm thinking of New Year's resolutions, it always takes me a while to decide what's actually worth my time and what's reasonable, etc. So we've got to come up with an idea first. What's our plan? Has anyone got a New Year's resolution that they'll share? Marty, have you got one? No. Nope. Nope. Are you sure? Yeah, go on ahead. That's a really great idea, Marty. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. We'll try to keep you accountable. Um, so yes, we come up with this idea first and we, we try to think about what's good. And in verse one to three of this passage here, we see that David has this great idea. This is like his New Year's resolution, essentially. And it's to build God a temple. He's got really good intentions behind it, too, because he says that he thinks God actually deserves to live in more than a tent, especially when David lives in a palace. And so David says to the prophet Nathan that he's going to do something about it then. Do you see that in verse 2 there? He says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He sees that there's something wrong with that. And so Nathan thinks this is a great idea. And in verse 3, he tells David to go for it. He says, go on ahead. And he's got a great vision. He's got a great idea for the year ahead. His heart is to serve God here, and it's brilliant. But that night, God speaks to Nathan. And he gives the message that David actually shouldn't build this temple. But why not? He wants to serve God. He had good motives behind it. Why did God say no? Well, because sometimes good ideas aren't right for now. Sometimes good ideas aren't right for now. And the text gives us three reasons behind it then. 
And the first reason is that the tent actually taught an important lesson, and it was that God would go with his people wherever they go. Look at verse 6 there. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving in a tent for my dwelling. It showed that God moved with his people. And then the second reason is that God didn't actually ask for a temple. David just assumed that that was good. Verse 7, God says that he never asked anyone this question then. Why have you not built me a house of cedar? He never said that. And then the third reason, which we'll see in the rest of the text, is that God actually had a different role for David. So I think this, in these first couple of verses, gives us something really worth thinking about, both personally and as a local church. Because maybe we don't see these reasons ourselves, and it's particularly difficult to do whenever it's your own idea. But God knows that good ideas aren't always right for now. And that's, that's really tough to take. But for you here tonight, when that new comes, whenever you don't get the job, or whenever you can't move house, or when you can't have children after trying again, or when that relationship never happens that you want it, or even whenever you've had this idea to reach out to people just falls through, when that no comes from God, how do we respond to that? Because when David and Nathan got a no from God, they could have easily tried to push it on through anyway, despite his word. They could have said, but that's what I want, or, because, or that's what I think will glorify you, God. But they didn't. And in fact, what actually really glorified God was their response. Because they both respond in such a godly, submissive manner by setting aside their desires and aligning themselves actually with what God says. Because they knew that his plan would not only bring him glory, but it would be for their own good as well. They knew that even if it was a good idea, it wasn't right for now. And maybe you've had an idea that you thought was what God wanted. You maybe even prayed about it for a while and tried to assess if it was worth your time, if, it, if, if, if you were going to be able to do it. And at each step, you maybe thought, yes. And I've totally been there. And that after all that, sometimes God closes the door. And what do we do with that then? Well, we trust God's sovereignty and see that good ideas aren't always right for now. We often don't know the reasons why, but we do know that in all things, God works for our good and for his glory. Because he uses not just good ideas, but he also uses perfect timing to make us more like his son. And that's a privilege that we as people don't deserve by any means, but we can rejoice that we have it even through these painful news. So then there's a no to David's plan. So that's his plan. God said no to that. But it's because not only was the timing wrong, but God had a greater plan for him. And then we see that he had greater things in store for him in the rest of this passage in verses 8 to 16. Now, back in Genesis, whenever we were looking at that a long time ago, uh, we looked at how God made covenants with Abraham and Moses. But in this passage then, he makes another covenant, and he makes it with David this time. And each one of these, I personally haven't seen this before, but I realized it as I studied it. They should give us such joy in our faith because we see that through these covenants, God exerts all of his power and all of his knowledge 
to do good to his people. He does everything to see those covenants through for the good of his people. And we are those people if we follow Jesus. He is sovereign over a greater plan. Now, we make promises to ourselves through these resolutions to make different changes to maybe one or two areas of our life. But these promises that God makes with his people should affect every area of our life. Because through them, as a Christian, you can know that God is all-powerful and all-wise and all-for-you. That should make such a difference to how we live practically, how we use our time, how we spend our money, how we relate to other people, how we handle our anxieties. This confidence that a sovereign God out of total grace is working everything together for your good should just change everything. You'll know that it's, as a Christian, even if you get a door closed or even if things don't go to plan or you've had a rough week, you'll know that God's working even those things for your good. And so your response can just be dramatically different than if that weren't true. Because you know that you're in the midst of a greater plan that God's working out. When God comes to David with this covenant, he doesn't just explain what the better plan is. He not only explains what David's role is, in a sense, but he also reveals what his own job description is in the midst of this. As the one who's sovereign in seeing this covenant fulfilled. And how do we see that here then? We'll turn to the passage again. Because he first tells David what he's going to do. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, I will make for you a great name. And then in verse 10 he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And then in verse 11 he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, you're maybe thinking, well, that covenant actually sounds pretty similar to the one that we looked at ages ago in Genesis with Abraham. And it's because it actually is, and it's a continuation of it. But here we have this new idea of kingship built in, where God wants this covenant to happen through the family line of David. Now, I love the wordplay used here, because if you look at the passage, you can see what David wanted to do for God at the start of this chapter. He wanted to build him a house. But then look what God says he'll do for him in verse 11 there. He says he's going to build David a house. He wants David to be woven into this plan, which is actually much greater than building a temple. It's much greater than the idea that David had from the start. But let's stop there for a minute because we then come to a bit of a problem at this next verse. So, if we skip on to verse 16, look at what the purpose of this is. Verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then even in verse 13, he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, 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 forever. He keeps repeating it. And so this covenant is going to impact the rest of eternity with David in it. But here's the problem, because go back to verse 12. Here's the problem. Look what it says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, David's going to die. Forever suddenly seems like it's being cut short a bit there, doesn't it? So did God just plan to give up on his promise by February then, like our New Year's resolutions? 
Well, here's a different question that I'd like you to think about. Do you ever say about your New Year's resolutions that you fulfilled them by February? So take, for example, if you say that you're going to exercise regularly, maybe regardless of how well you're doing, by February you can't really say that you fulfilled it. Sure you can't. Because the time span hasn't been up for you to determine whether you've completed your New Year's resolution. So just because it hasn't been completely fulfilled, it doesn't mean that we failed it either. And this is the same for this covenant that God made. Because his covenants work like the success of new habits. They work step by step. And if David's going to die, like we read in verse 12, it means his kingdom must be established and secured then by a descendant. When God said he's, built, he's going to build David a house, he was saying that he was going to build him a dynasty. He's going to build him this line of rulers in Israel which should come from his own uh, family. God doesn't fail his word. He's sovereign in working out this covenant in his own perfect timing. And the first step of this fulfillment is in verse 12, then if we read the next bit of it. God says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God says to David that his son, that he's going to use his son then to build him a house. And surely what does David's son Solomon do? Then he builds God the temple, doesn't he? And so we already start to get a glimpse of how God is working out this covenant. How he's working out this greater plan that he had in store. But now let's think about this. It would have been very easy to think that God had failed us, wouldn't it, whenever David died? He was the one promised this eternal kingdom. We'd question his promises, wouldn't we? And when one after one his descendants died, I'm sure for many of the people, their hope in God just dwindled down and down after one after the other they saw the descendants pass away. We've all been there with our circumstances where they just start to cloud the view of God's promises, haven't we? For example, when God says that he'll reign sovereign and supreme and yet abortion laws are passed and same-sex marriage laws go ahead and people seem to live very comfortable lives who just run God's name into the ground, how do we weigh those two things up? Or when he promises to make you more like Jesus and yet here you are battling with anger or with lust or with jealousy, how do we add those two up? Well, because like we see in the text, the partial fulfillment often comes before the complete fulfillment and it all happens in God's perfect timing. He does reign sovereign and supreme because he's still the judge the righteous will be vindicated and all sin will be dealt with either on the cross or in hell. And likewise, we're made more like Jesus day by day because he uses those circumstances to do that for us. But for both of these things, we won't see the full, the full fulfillment of them when, until Jesus returns or until we go to glory. God is sovereign over his plans, and we've got to hold on to the hope of their fulfillment because he gives us these glimpses for a reason. Now, while Solomon building the temple gave us a glimpse of the promise being fulfilled, 
it still leaves us with another problem. Because beneath this covenant are the conditions of that Abrahamic covenant that I talked about. Because God essentially says, well, this is how I'll work for you with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my strength if you will love me and cleave to me and trust my word. He requires obedience from them. The covenant can't be secure then in the hands of a sinner. And that's why in verse 14, if you look at the passage again, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But listen to this bit. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, from whom I put away before you. So Solomon obviously then won't fulfill the conditions if he needs to be disciplined. That means that he's failed, obviously. And if we look at 1 Kings 11, I think it's on your handout, isn't it? Yeah, as long as I haven't forgotten it. No, it's not. That's okay. I'll just read it. Then listen to what God says to Solomon. So Solomon has married some foreign women, and he starts to worship their gods. And this is what God says to him after that. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now, if this promise of, for David's kingdom can't be secured because descendants are obviously going to sin one after the other, then what happens next? God says he's tearing it away from Solomon because he hasn't obeyed him. So what happens next? Does God just go back and change a little bit of what he said? Or does he, like us, just give up by February on the promise? Or does he do everything that he can to fulfill those promises that he's made? Remember that while God's promises don't disintegrate by February, they also don't have to be fulfilled by February. And so while descendant after descendant will indeed fail, God says the covenant will be fulfilled. In fact, he's going to make sure the covenant is fulfilled. Because look at verse 16. We see a glimpse of what he means by this. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. They shall be made sure before me. So God says that he's going to step in and he's going to make sure that this covenant comes to pass. He's going to fight that battle. And we're probably wondering, well, how is he going to do that? We'll look at Matthew 1 on your sheet. This is potentially my favorite discovery through this. So from verse 6, we see the line of descendants from David, generation after generation, until we look at verse 16 on the other side of the page, and it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. There's the descendant. The surety of this covenant with David lies ultimately in the fact that God himself will come as king and he will sit upon the throne. He'll make sure the conditions are fulfilled because he's going to come himself in the form of a sinless man. Luke 1, 31 to 33 says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. When God makes a promise, it's not futile like any of our New Year's resolutions. In fact, he'll go to every length to ensure that they come to pass, even if it means coming down to earth himself. We have a God who stops at nothing when it comes to fulfilling his word. The perfect, sinless God-man came down to earth to make sure the Davidic covenant was secure. And so, as his people, we could rest in those blessings. He stops at nothing so that you can know he is the all-powerful and all-wise God who is all for you. Now, this covenant said that the kingdom would have no end. So can I share with you some verses then from Isaiah as an invitation? And I want you to think about tonight, are you part of this kingdom, this family? Are you resting in the fact that God has done everything to ensure the covenant that you step into with him is eternal? Are you resting in that? You can come empty-handed just as you are. And this is an invitation from God, from his word, an invitation to make this covenant with David a covenant with you personally, and all made possible through the precious blood of his son whom he sent to die on the cross. And the point of this invitation is that the very sovereignty and wisdom of God, which assured David of this eternal kingdom, can assure you of God's eternal kindness towards you, being part of that kingdom. Isaiah 55, 1-3, it's on your handout. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He's saying, come as you are. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. He did everything in his power to guarantee David an eternal kingdom. And he does everything in his power to see your salvation through as you come to him. That covenant secures that when you come to him in the obedience of faith, he'll be your savior, your joy, your righteousness, your sustainer, your father, and remember the time span of this covenant? It's forever. Nothing can take that covenant he binds with you away. No sin, no circumstances, no feelings. In fact, Romans 8 says, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a promise to look at and to hold on to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the assurance that we can have in our faith from this passage. Father, we thank you that we can see through David and Nathan at the start that when you give us a no, it's because you have a perfect timing in your will. Father, help us to see that you are sovereign and in control of your plans for us, God. You're sovereign and control in the plans of this world. And Father, I thank you that through this covenant that we can see you're all powerful, all wise, and all for us as your children. 
And God, would we hold tight to that? Would we hold tight to that in the midst of circumstances which are trying to convince us otherwise? Father, would we look to your word and see that as you promised, God, over time you fulfilled it step by step. And Father, we look forward to the day when we see you face to face. Father, we look forward to the promises to see their full fulfillment. And God, we thank you that you stopped at nothing to fulfill this covenant. We thank you that you stopped at nothing to enable us to come to you by sending your son, Jesus, to die a death that he didn't deserve, Father, to fulfill the conditions of this covenant and to enable us to come to you, Father, to know you as our own Father. God, we pray that in response to this, we would have an assurance of our faith. And Father, we would go on to spread the news to those who don't yet know it. Help us, we pray.